Today I'm continuing a series that I started teaching on financial stewardship. The things that I've been saying about this are said from kind of a different perspective than what you usually hear teaching on the subject of finances. Now I've already covered so much material I hadn't got time to go back and summarize that. But let me just say that in the process of teaching on this, of course, I've talked about the importance of giving, but I haven't just really focused singly on giving. We've, we've mentioned this, but I'm going to focus on how important it is for you to start giving financially. It's not a matter of just recognizing that God is your source and praying and asking God for financial blessing, but there is a kingdom principle here that the Bible compares our finances many times to a seed. And in the same way that you have to take a seed and you have to sow it in the ground, in a sense you have to give that seed away. It has to leave your life and you have to put it in the ground and by faith believe that that seed is going to germinate, grow up and produce new seeds. Let me just take some scriptures here out of Proverbs chapter 3 in verse 9. This says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. You know, it's a very simple passage of Scripture, and to those of you who've seen these principles about giving, this is really something that is just very, very basic. But it's amazing how most people do not understand these concepts. This says, Honor the Lord with thy substance. And he's talking here about giving. He goes on to say in that same verse, with the first fruits of all thine increase. This is talking about your crops. The way that we would apply this today is with your paycheck, with all of the money that comes your way, etc. And uh, it says that you honor the Lord with your substance. When you take a portion of what God has given you and you give it back unto Him, that is honoring the Lord. So you could turn this verse around and say it this way that if you aren't giving a portion of what God has given you, then you aren't honoring the Lord. If you really trust the Lord, then He told us to take a tithe, and not only a tithe, but a portion above the tithe, your offerings, and He told us to give it back unto Him, and that when we do that, God is going to prosper us. And if you are not doing that, you can say whatever you want to, but talk is cheap. The Bible says faith without works is dead. If you aren't doing that, regardless of what you say, regardless of what you think, you aren't honoring the Lord in this area of finances. You aren't trusting God. You've got to not only say that you're trusting God, you've got to demonstrate it. There has to be some action. So how do you take, how do you take a step of faith and demonstrate that God is really your source and that you're trusting God? He tells you to give him 10% and then even above that, offerings above that. And you know what? If there wasn't a God and if he didn't promise us that when we give, it's going to be given back unto us, if those things weren't true, well then just in the natural realm, excluding God from the equation, giving away a portion of what you've got is one of the stupidest things you, you could do. But God does exist, and His promises are true. And because of that, it's actually a step of faith. This is why God wants you to give. He's not trying to take from you. He's trying to get money to you. God is trying to bless you. God wants to increase you. It says in Psalms chapter 35, verse 27, Let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. God isn't trying to take from you. 
But He is trying to get you to take a step of faith so that He can increase you more and so that He can uh, flow more finances and more blessings through you. If you would take that step of faith and do this because you are trusting God, then I can guarantee you by my own personal experience, also on the authority of the Word of God, that when you honor the Lord with your substance and give Him your very best, the first fruits, that's when your barns get filled with plenty. The way we would say this is your bank account is full, your savings account is full, all of these kind of things. And your presses will burst out with new wine. You'll have all of your needs met. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, it says, There is that scattereth, and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Now this, again, is just totally opposite of the way that the average person thinks. Most people think that if you are desirous of increase in the area of finances, if you want finances to increase, what you need to do is start saving, hoarding, not spending as much, And that's the way you're going to increase. But notice it says, there is that scattereth, and yet he increases. In other words, this is talking about just the opposite of the way the world thinks. Instead of hoarding, instead of keeping, instead start being uh, being a giver. Start scattering, giving, and you will increase. And then on the other hand, there is that that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Notice the terminology here. It says it's talking about a person that withholds more than his meat. Well, what is more than his meat? What is more than is appropriate or proper? Well, I can guarantee you if you aren't giving a tithe and if you aren't giving offerings above your tithes, then you are withholding more than it is meat, more than is proper. And I know that there's many of you that will probably be offended at that and say, well, you're telling me that I need to be given at least 10%. You don't know my situation and you don't know how hard it is being a single mom or whatever your situation is. But you know what? This is just a cardinal law of God that if you want to see the prosperity of God operate in your life, you've got to start giving and that's when you increase. Not when you hoard, not when you save, not when you withhold a tithe and an offering. If you do that, it is going to tend to poverty. In verse 25, it says, The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. In other words, again, this is just old English terminology, but this is talking about giving. When you start giving, when you start watering, taking care of other people, using your resources, not all for yourself, but you start putting other people's needs ahead of your own needs and you start blessing other people, then God says you will be watered. In other words, you will reap what you sow. It says over in Galatians chapter 6, "...whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap." One of the translations says, that and that only shall he reap. That's exactly what the scripture says over here in Luke chapter 6. And in verse 38 it says, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all it shall be measured to you again. There are some of you that are wanting God to supply great things. You're wanting to go out and start a business or to buy a new house or you need a car or you need this or you need tuition for your kid's school or there could be a multitude of things. You're wanting God to supply all of these needs, but you are going to give just little tiny bits to God and you're going to want great increase to come back. 
That's not how it works. It says, with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. You use a little tiny teaspoon to give to God. Don't expect to get a bucket or a shovel full back. That's not how it works. God uses the measure that you use. And here, the good thing is, God is not talking about just the amount of your gift, the amount of money, but it's proportional. God looks at things proportionately. And so that means that even though you may not be a very wealthy person, if you give 10%, did you know you would be giving more than a person who's a millionaire who gives $1,000 or $2,000 or something like that? And so it really doesn't matter about how much you have right now. If you start giving percentage-wise a large gift and sharing and ministering to other people, well, then I guarantee you God will use that same percentage out of His abundance to start giving back unto you. And you can start seeing supernatural prosperity. It's the liberal soul that's going to be made fat, not the one that hoards everything for themselves. It's when we scatter that we increase. It's when we honor the Lord with the first fruits of our increase that we begin to really prosper. If you want to really get into the prosperity that God wants you to have, you are going to have to start taking a step of faith and start giving. Let me just take some scriptures over here that many of you have heard and apply this directly to this principle of giving. In Matthew chapter 6, this is Jesus' teaching. He was teaching what was called the Sermon on the Mount. He taught a a long period of time during this day. And part of what he said here was talking about finances. Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 19, it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. This is not saying that you can't have any money like in a bank account or in a savings account. Now that can't be what it's talking about because there's references that talk about that a godly man, a righteous man, will leave an inheritance to his children's children. That's talking about not only your children but your grandchildren. In order to be able to leave an inheritance, you have to have some savings, some assets, something that you have Uh, financial blessings here in this life. So this is not saying that we have to all take an oath of poverty. The Lord is not against us having things, but the focus here has to be not on us trusting in the money that we have set aside. Here's another way that you could say this. Actually, when you are building assets and laying up, uh, you know, an inheritance for your children's children, that's really not for yourself. You are building money and increasing goods so that you can be a blessing to your children and even to your grandchildren. That's actually not a selfish thing. You are thinking about another person. You could say it this way, that you just don't need to be laying up money for yourself. You know, there's an example that Jesus gave in another passage of Scripture. Again, I can't find the exact reference right off the top of my head, but he was talking about this rich man who had such an abundant harvest come in that he said, I'm going to go tear down all of my barns. I'm going to build bigger and better barns. And then after he did that, he looked at all of his wealth and he says, you know, soul, take your rest, eat, drink, and be merry because look at all of your abundance. And the Lord spoke that that very night. He said, you fool." Your life is going to be required of you this night. And then, whose will all of these things go to? The emphasis here isn't saying that it's wrong for you to have a bank account for a savings, for to do anything like that, or to own any possessions. But it's just saying that you shouldn't make your focus putting 
uh, you shouldn't put your focus on providing just financially for yourself. But as we go on through this, it'll culminate down in verse 33. You should put the focus on seeking first the kingdom of God. You ought to first and foremost build the kingdom of God. You ought to use your finances to bless other people. And if you do that, I know that there's some people saying, well, if I did that, who would take care of me? If I, if I put all of my effort into blessing other people and taking care of them, who's going to take care of me? Well, in the natural, if you don't believe in God and if you aren't God conscious, well, then that would be silly because there's nobody who's going to take care of you as well as you could take care of yourself. But these passages of Scripture are going to reveal that God loves you more than you love yourself. And because there is a God and because He is real and His promises are true, when you start taking your finances and don't primarily take care of yourself and just provide for yourself, but you use your resources to be a blessing to other people, when you do that, God loves you so much. He will take care of you better than you've ever taken care of yourself before. That is absolutely true. You know, God is El Shaddai. He is not El Chipo. God, just look at the heavens and the earth. Look at the extravagance that God goes to. Look in the book of Revelation, the, the uh, New Jerusalem that God is making for us. He paves His streets out of pure, transparent gold. He makes all of His gates out of pearls. There are precious stones that are the foundation. I mean, he even, you know, in the foundation, he puts in all of this wealth and all of this, this tremendous beauty and stuff just into the foundation of the building. God is awesome. And, you know, that's just a small picture of how God is. God will take care of you better than you would ever take care of yourself if you will, first of all, put first the kingdom of God. I am not preaching that you have to do without. I am not preaching poverty. But just like Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. In other words, you need to put your priority using your resources primarily for the kingdom of God. And again, there's many of you that just will not understand this because you think it cannot work this way. Well, don't wake me up because this is how it's working. It isn't going to make sense in the natural. There isn't any arithmetic that will prove this. But I'm telling you, this is what the Word of God says. And if you will do that, seek first the kingdom of God, then God will supernaturally start taking care of your needs. That's what all these passages are talking about. So we've already read Matthew 6, 19 and 20. He talks about don't lay up for yourself treasures upon earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, this is another tremendous reason why God told us to be such radical givers. Is because you can literally direct where your heart goes by where your money goes. You know, to me, it's interesting that this didn't say, for where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Now, I believe that you could make that point, and I believe that there's other scriptures that actually make that point. Uh, you know, your heart uh, will determine... You can look at your life. You could look at your giving. You could look at what you do with your money, and I could basically tell you where your heart is. I believe that that is a scriptural truth. I believe that that's an accurate statement. But this is saying where your treasure is 
there will your heart be also. Did you know if you would start taking your finances and giving and blessing other people and doing things outside of yourself, did you know that you could change the direction that your heart is? If I was to take your wallet or your purse, and if I was to take that money and walk out the door, did you know what? Your heart would go with me. You would be thinking about what's he doing with my money? Where's he going? What's he going to do? And even though you might be doing something else, I guarantee you, your heart would be focused on me and that money. You can take your money and you can put it into the kingdom of God and you can literally redirect your heart away from all of the carnal things of this earth that separate us from God. And you can direct your heart towards God by placing your money in the kingdom of God. Boy, these are some powerful, powerful truths that we're talking about. I've already talked about verses 19, 20, and 21. It says in verse 22, it says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness." Now, this is a symbolism that it's using here. I don't believe that this is physically talking about your physical eye. This is just talking about your focus. If your eye is single, or if you could say, if your focus is single, then your whole body will be full of light. Now, that's, of course, supposing that your focus is on God. If you are single in your focus upon God, if you are searching God with your whole heart, then your whole body will be full of light. The light of God, His love, His joy, His peace, His blessing, His favor, His anointing, all of the things that are associated with God, that's the light of God. These things will flood your life and you will be full of all of the things that God has to offer. But it goes on to say in the next verse, verse 23, if your eye is evil. Now he's contrasting this with the previous verse where it talked about if your eye be single, if your focus is single, then your whole body will be full of light. But in verse 23, if your eye is evil. So what is the opposite of single? Well, you would say that if your eye is double, if your focus is divided, then that is having an evil eye. Or you could say it this way. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 22 says, He that hasteneth to be rich hath an evil eye. Did you know if your focus is on becoming rich, if your focus is on getting more and doing all of these things, then you know what? That is a divided attention and it says that your whole body will be full of darkness. Now this is a very important concept. I pray that you're following with me and getting this. Basically, the Lord is saying that He wants you to be single in your focus upon Him. Now, most people really don't believe that's possible. Most people don't believe that you can be totally committed and focused on God in everything you do. Some people will say, well, for you preachers, maybe you can do it because all you do is study the Word and pray all day. Well, you know what? There's a lot more to it than that. I won't go into all of that, but... It takes discipline on my part to keep my heart and my attention focused on God just the same as it does anybody else. But you know what? I wasn't always a preacher. I went through the army, and I guarantee you, I kept my heart and my focus stayed upon God. I've been through uh, secular employment. I've poured cement for a living. I've done a number of different things. And you know what? In every one of those situations, I was able to keep my attention stayed upon the Lord. 
The Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down of imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Those verses are saying that the weapons God has given us are so strong that they can bring every thought into obedience to Christ. You can work. You can raise a family. You can do the things that you have to do to live and exist in our world today and still keep your attention 100% upon God. But you can't do it if you are the one that is responsible for producing the financial blessing in your life. I don't know if you got that, but it's an attitude that I'm talking about. If you think that you are the one that has to plan and scheme and you have to do all of these things and you have to just work your fingers to the bone and if you are the one that is producing financial blessing and prosperity in your life, then you are going to have your heart divided You are going to have your heart focused upon riches and upon things like this. And according to these verses of Scripture, that is going to allow darkness to enter your life. And it's going to uh, hinder you in your relationship with God. You know, Linus Lefevre, the director of our Bible college, uh, teaches a class in our Bible school on vision. And one of the statements that I've heard him make is that if you want to destroy a man's vision, give him two. And basically, it's just talking about that you can't successfully do all of these things. We use this term multitasking today, and people take great great pride in it, but it's really an ungodly concept. The Lord wants you to be single in your focus. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, this one thing I do. The reason he prospered and turned the world right side up And the reason that we're talking about him 2,000 years later is because he did one thing. He sought first the kingdom of God. He kept to what God told him to do. And the scripture just teaches that if you want to really prosper, then you need to forget all of these other things and press towards this one goal of putting first the kingdom of God. And when you do that, somebody says, but if I did that, how would I survive? God will take care of you. If you will take care of His kingdom, God will take care of your kingdom. Boy, that is a powerful truth. And I know that many of you just can't believe that. And that's the reason that you don't put first the kingdom of God and trust Him, and that's the reason that you aren't prosperous. But I'm telling you that this is exactly what the Word is saying. After he says all of these things in verse 24, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon here is just an old English word to describe money. You can't serve God and money. You can't have just like Sunday given over to God, and then a devotional during the week or a prayer time that you have, a brief period of time. And those that's God's time. But then the rest of your life is all your time. You know, that's not a godly concept. You need to make a commitment to where all of you is given to God, and especially in this area of finances. You spend more time working a job than you do anything else. And God wants to be the source of your financial blessing. It's not like you just... Think about God on Sundays and during your devotion and then the rest of the week you're out there trying to survive and make a living. But no, you serve God all week long. You put God first, even in your job. 
And as you do that, God will supernaturally grant you promotions, bonuses, raises, sales. God will give you creative ideas how to do things and all of this. So in verse 25, he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Now there needs to be a little interpretation here. This isn't saying that the Lord doesn't tell you to sit there and think about whether your shirt matches your slacks and your socks match each other. This isn't talking about that you don't use your brain when you get dressed or you don't go think about what you're going to eat and plan your meals. Matter of fact, one of the translations, I forget which one I read this in, it says, take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall put on. This isn't saying that you don't use your brain, that you don't look in a mirror to see if your, you know, your blouse is buttoned or something like that. But this is just talking about that this isn't your focus. You aren't focused. You aren't anxious worrying about what you put on, what you eat, where you sleep. But instead, you just uh, take what God has given you. You put first the kingdom of God and God supernaturally blesses you and takes care of all of these physical needs. In verse 26, it says, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? If God takes care of the animals, the sparrows and all of these animals, and there's other scriptures that talk about that God feeds them out of His hand. God takes care of His creation. If God takes care of the animals... How much better are we than an animal? There's a huge difference between a person created in the image of God and an animal that is just an animal. God loves us much more than He loves these animals. And if God takes care of His animal creation, how much more is He going to take care of us? These things are said to put away, to uh, put down any fears that we have about, well, if I just was to take my finances and start putting first the kingdom of God, if I start paying a tithe and giving offerings and giving this money away, what about me? Who's going to take care of me? God would take care of you. And God will take care of you better than you took care of yourself. It goes on to say in verse 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? You can't make yourself taller by thinking about it. You know what? God is the one that determines your height. God controls these kind of things. And if God is in control, if God is taking care of you and doing all of these things, He'll also take care of you in the financial realm. It does not have to all fall upon your shoulders. If you would put first the kingdom of God, God will take care of you financially. In verse 28, And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon in all of his glory. He had a throne that was made out of ivory and he had lions carved out of ivory on both sides and overlaid with gold. He had so much prosperity that they didn't even account silver as worth anything in his days. They threw silver out on the streets like just a rock. He was the wealthiest man that had ever lived on the earth. And yet God says that a lily of the field is more beautiful, more gorgeously arrayed 
than Solomon was. Now, if God is going to take care of a lily, which is here just a brief period of time, and then it dies and withers away, how much more is he going to take care of you? If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? I know some of you are struggling in what I'm saying, and you're saying, but if I was to start paying tithes and giving offerings and doing this... Who would take care of me? And you're struggling to believe that God would do it. He's saying, if God will do this for the grass of the field, for the birds of the air, how much more will He do it for you, O you of little faith? If you're struggling with this, it's because you have little faith. It's because you aren't using what God has given you. Like I started this teaching in Luke chapter 16, I believe it was around verse 12, 11 or 12, it says that this is the least area of trusting God is in the area of finances. If you can't believe that by taking a portion of what you've got and obeying God and giving back to the kingdom of God, that God is going to take care of you, then you are, O ye of little faith. In verse 31, it says, Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things that the Gentiles seek... For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All of what things? Raiment, eating, where you sleep, what you're clothed with, all these kind of things that He had listed. This is a promise that if you would put first the kingdom of God, God will take care of you. And God will take care of you better than you took care of yourself, with less less effort than you took care of yourself. The worry, the care, the frustration, the anxiety that you feel over your financial uh, future would all be gone if you were to start honoring God and putting God first and putting first the kingdom of God. We're drawing to the end of this uh, teaching, and I've talked about a lot of things. What I want to do is talk about the power of partnership and tell you how that being a partner in ministry with somebody has special benefits attached to it. Now, there is a blessing on giving, and I've used a lot of scriptures and I've already talked about that, but there is a special blessing on partnership, and there are scriptures that talk about this, and I want to bring this out. In Philippians chapter 1, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the people at Philippi, And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 5, that word fellowship in the Greek is the Greek word koinonia, and it's a word that literally means partnership. And so Paul here is thanking these people for their partnership in the gospel. Now, notice in verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. What was it that caused this kind of a response? Well, that verse 5 says, for your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. These people were people who gave unto Paul Uh, in a greater way than anybody else had. 
If I had time, we could go through a number of scriptures here in the book of Philippians. But let me flip over to Philippians chapter 4 and just show you some of these other things that the Apostle Paul says about these people in Philippi. In verse 10... Uh, it says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Now, the context of this, I won't take time to go back and do all of this, but these people sent unto Paul uh, clothes and parchments and money and things to minister to the necessities of the Apostle Paul. And he says that their care of him had flourished again, wherein they were also careful, but they lacked opportunity. This is referring to the fact that back in those days, they, of course, didn't have the transportation and the communication uh, advantages that we have today. These people in Philippi had been partners, regular supporters with the Apostle Paul. And they had given liberally to help him carry this gospel to other places around the world. But then the Apostle Paul got arrested when he was in Jerusalem and for two years he was locked up in prison and then he was in transit on his way to Rome on a prison ship and he got shipwrecked on an island and so for about three years he was out of pocket. They didn't have the uh, communications that we do today. They didn't have cell phones and things like this and so they didn't know exactly where the Apostle Paul was. Finally, they got word that he had made it to Rome, that he was in prison in Rome. And as soon as these people got to where they could help him again, they immediately sent clothes, parchments, uh, things for him to study. They sent finances to help him, people to serve him. And these people were givers. And once again, they started giving and supporting the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So this is what he's talking about. He says, I praise God that your care of me, these things that they had sent, had flourished again. And they had wanted to do this before, but they didn't have the opportunity because they didn't know where he was. They didn't have communication, etc. In verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to uh, abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strength, which strengtheneth me. So he says, the reason I'm rejoicing over the fact that you once again, your care of me has flourished, isn't because of just selfish things. He says, I've learned how to do without. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to be in need. I can do all things through Christ. It wasn't a selfish reason that he was rejoicing. He was rejoicing because he saw the heart of these people and he knew that by them giving to him that they were actually giving to God, that this was going to go to their account that it was going to open up the windows of heaven and cause God to pour out a blessing on them. And so that's the reason that Paul was rejoicing. In verse 14, he says, Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. This is saying that when, it, when he's talking about you communicated with me, this is talking about that they gave financially, that they gave to help Paul take the gospel to other places. And the Apostle Paul makes an amazing statement right here in verse 15. He says that no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. 
You know, I find this a really sad thing. I mean, this is, this is really tragic if you really stop and think about it. Here's the Apostle Paul, and of course he had other people that traveled with him. These people laid their life down. When they went to Philippi, the very place that uh, he's writing to right here, he was thrown into the Philippian jail, and they tried to kill him, but God supernaturally set him free. An earthquake came and broke off all of their bands. And instead of them exiting the prison and escaping, they stayed there and led the jailer to the Lord. And finally, uh, they got released. But they suffered tremendously. They put their life on the line. They did all of these things. And only one group of people, the Philippian people, are the only ones out of all of the people, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, all of these places where the Apostle Paul mentioned, there was only one group of people, the Philippians, that sent money to help him preach the gospel to someplace else. In other words, the Apostle Paul went to these different places and while he was there, people would give to him and they would take him into their home and they would help feed him and they would help meet his needs. But then as soon as he left that town, he was on his own. And here he was. Every time he went into a new place, he had to basically start over and start being dependent upon the generosity of the people he was ministering to. You know, that's not the way that God intended this to be. The Apostle Paul should not have had to have done these things. People should have been so thankful for what God had done in their life, for their salvation, that they should have willingly taken care of Paul while he was there. And then when he left, they should have blessed him so that he wouldn't have had a care in the world about any of his finances, about anything. But they should have just blessed him. But only one group of people did that. And that was these Philippian people. And the Apostle Paul, this is the reason that the Apostle Paul was thankful every time he thought about the Philippians was because these people had given of themselves. These people had not only received the gospel and Paul had a, a, you know, a joy and a blessing in seeing their lives changed. That's great. But these people even went a step beyond that and they began to bless the person who had shared the gospel with them. And the Apostle Paul is rejoicing over that. In verse 16, he says, For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessities. That's just old English for saying twice they sent financially to help Paul while he was in Thessalonica. And it was a good thing because Thessalonica didn't receive his ministry that well. And uh, he basically was run out of town on a rail and there wasn't the financial support when he was ministering there. And if it hadn't have been for the Philippians, he might not have been able to continue that ministry. These Philippians were people who were givers beyond what it took just for them to get the gospel. They gave to the Apostle Paul and helped him take the gospel to Thessalonica and to Berea. And in verse uh, 17, he says, "...not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account." The reason that the Apostle Paul was rejoicing so much over these Philippians giving wasn't because it was just benefiting him. Now, it was benefiting him, but it wasn't because of selfish things that he was rejoicing. He was rejoicing because he knew that when they started being a partner in the gospel, that they were going to have fruit that would abound to their account. This is the same principle that I've used, and I've talked from many scriptures on this, that when you give, it's given back unto you. That if you will honor the Lord with the first fruits and the increase, uh, that God will begin to prosper you. You will abound in all of these things. It's just a promise. Give and it comes back unto you. So Paul, 
was rejoicing, not just because it was benefiting him, because he knew it was going to bless those Philippians. And in verse 18, he says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So the Apostle Paul, this was now at least the third time that we have record of right here. And I believe that there was probably more. But at least three times these Philippians had sent, and they didn't just give a token or a tiny bit just to keep him from starving to death. He says, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. And uh, he said that he abounded in the first part of that verse. They blessed him supernaturally. You know, the scripture says over in um, 1 Timothy chapter 5 that you are supposed to give unto the people who have ministered unto you. And it says, count the elders that rule well worthy of double honor. And if you take that in context, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's talking about finances. People who do a good job preaching the gospel and ministering to people should get double what you would typically give them. These people bless the Apostle Paul so much so that he says, I abound, I am full, having all of these things. But then he says in verse 19, this is a familiar passage of Scripture that people typically pull out of context and use it to say things that the Scripture isn't really saying. This Scripture is based on all of these things we've been talking about, these partners who had given sacrificially and had given abundantly to bless the Apostle Paul. Then the Apostle Paul said, But my God shall supply all of your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now again, to take that verse out of context and just apply this to any Joe Blow saint that God is going to supply all of their need. Do you know that's not an accurate statement? Now I do believe that God wants to bless every person, even non-believers. God makes His Son to rise on the just and on the unjust. God sends rain and blesses even people who are outside of the body of Christ. But people within the body of Christ... God wants to bless you. I believe that there are other scriptures you can stand on about how God delights in the prosperity of His servant. Uh, 3 John verse 2 says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. There's many scriptures you can stand on about how God wants to bless you. But this verse about having all of your needs supplied according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus... This verse is specifically being applied to partners, people who gave and didn't just give to to help supply the need for them to get the gospel, but people who were giving to help preach the gospel beyond their, their own city. In other words, modern day terminology, this is talking about a person who isn't just giving to get a tape or a book, or a video, or something like that that is going to minister to them directly. But this is talking about people who partner with a church, or with a missions program, or with a ministry, and they help send the gospel to someone else. When you start doing that, when you become a partner, and you start giving, not just to get the gospel to you, but to get the gospel to other people, did you know when you start doing that, that you become a partner and you become uh, eligible 
for Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, where my God is going to supply all of your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. There is a special blessing upon people who partner with ministries to be able to get the gospel out to other people. Boy, that is a powerful truth. And if you understood this properly, then instead of that money, when you start giving like on a regular basis, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul said, let every man lay by and store as God has prospered him on the first day of the week. On a weekly basis, it should be systematic giving, not just knee-jerk reaction, not just emotional giving when somebody touches your emotions every once in a while and you give, but you should give on a systematic, regular basis. And when you start doing that, not only to get the gospel to you, but specifically to partner with the kingdom of God so and get the gospel out to other people, when you start doing that, that starts a supernatural divine flow of prosperity towards you. That's what these verses are talking about. I don't know if you've ever seen it in this light or not, but I dare you to take this passage of Scripture, actually read the entire book of Philippians, look at it from especially Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, where he's talking to his partners, and you look at it, and if you will read this in context, this is a special blessing on people who become partners with taking the gospel to other people. You know, I've heard a man say it this way, that if you really want to be blessed, you know what you need to do is find a ministry that is doing a really good job preaching the gospel. And they have a big vision. And then become a partner with them. And if you would do that, the way that God blesses that ministry, blesses His kingdom and gets this word out, is that He blesses the people who are partners with that ministry. The ministry has to come through the partners before it goes to the ministry and then directly into the gospel out preaching and touching people's lives. So if you want to really prosper, you know one of the quickest, best ways to prosper is to find a ministry that is doing a good job preaching the gospel, a church, a missions program, something that is really powerfully anointed by God and become a partner with them and say, God... I'm going to make myself available. And just like it says over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10, God gives seed to the sowers. In other words, God will give money to people who will give it to someone else and not just sit there and eat it all for themselves. If you identify yourself and say, God, I'm going to become a giver. God, I'm going to be a partner. God, I want to help this church change this city. I want to help this person go around the world and preach the gospel. I want to help this radio, television ministry. I want to get the gospel out. God, I am becoming a partner with them. And so, Lord, here I identify myself. I'm a sower. And I promise you that as you get this money to me, you are going to get it through me. I will not build a dam and use it all for myself, but I am going to let this blessing flow through me and become a partner in getting the gospel out. When you do that... I guarantee you God is going to cause a supernatural flow of finances. You know, I've already used these verses, but let me once again just make this point. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10 says, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. God gives seed to sowers. God gives money to people who will use it 
to advance the kingdom. When you become a partner with God and you put first the kingdom of God and begin to start uh, systematically giving, there is a supernatural flow of finances towards you. It's a scriptural principle. And I know that many people may call my motive into question when I teach things like this, but I'm telling you it's the truth. And it works for me. I give. I give sacrificially to other people and it works for me. And I'm just saying it'll do the same for you. Look at this passage of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 18 and in verse 16. It says, A man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. Well, that's a powerful passage of Scripture. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, you know, I used to teach and believe that this gift was talking about like an anointing. Like, for instance, I've got a gift of teaching. And I thought if I would just use it properly that God would open up doors and bring me before great men because of this teaching gift that I have on my life. But let me share some things with you that I've gotten as I've studied this passage of Scripture. Part of this uh, came through hearing a good friend of mine, Bob Yandian, teach on this exact same thing. He's a pastor of Grace Fellowship Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And anyway, the Hebrew word that is used here in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16... It's M-A-T-T-A-N. I won't try and pronounce that, but it means uh, a present. It was used five times in the Old Testament, and there's two instances. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 6. Let me read that to you. This same word is used here, and it says, Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. The word gifts there is the exact same word that was translated gift in Proverbs 18, uh, 16. And this is talking about in Proverbs 19, 6, when it says, Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. Now see, this definitely is not talking about an anointing or a, a gift, like a teaching gift or an anointing to minister to the sick or something. This is talking about a gift, some kind of a monetary gift. In uh, Proverbs chapter 15, And verse 27, let me read that to you. It says, uh, He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. Now again, this isn't talking about hating an anointing or a call on a person's life. This is talking about hating a bribe is what this is talking about. A present. So this is the exact same Hebrew word that was used in all three of these passages. So let's go back to Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 16 and look at this. It says, A man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. If you take that Hebrew word and look at it in Proverbs 15, 27, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 6, and see the other ways that that exact same word was used, it leaves no doubt that this isn't talking about an anointing a calling on a person's life, but rather this is talking about a gift, a present, a bribe on the negative sense, but a a gift on the positive side. This is saying that a gift, some type of a monetary physical gift that you give will make room for you and bring you before great men. This is just establishing a principle that even in the natural realm, if you give gifts then it will open up a door. It will bring you before a great man. It accomplishes things for you. 
Now, the negative side of this is a bribe. All of us are familiar with how people bribe others and through that you get them to do things because you gave them this gift. But there is also a positive side to this. A gift doesn't have to be used in a negative way the way a bribe is. A gift can also be a positive thing that will open up doors to you and bring you before great men. And of course, you could use this in just a natural sense. If you were to want to go see somebody, did you know you can give a gift, a physical gift? There's other scriptures. I'm sorry, I don't know where this is at the moment. But there, it's either in Psalms or Proverbs. It says that uh, when you give a gift, you can actually appease wrath. You can turn away wrath by a gift. There's another proverb that says that. And uh, so in the natural realm, you could see this. If you had a co-worker that was just ragging on you all of the time, and it seems like that you just constantly had a problem, did you know that you could appease that wrath by just giving this person a gift? Now, it would have to be in sincerity if you're doing it hypocritically and if you're doing it sarcastically. I mean, it could make the matters worse. But if you were to just give a gift to a person who's been upset with you, did you know that it pacifies wrath is what the Scripture says? And so a gift in the natural realm will solve problems and it will open up doors for you. But in the spiritual realm, did you know that a gift also does a similar type of thing? A gift, and I'm talking here about prosperity and about giving, that when you give, that it begins to open up spiritual doors for you. It begins to open up opportunities to you. It will bring you before great people. Now, I know that some people resent that because you immediately look at that as a bribe. You immediately are skeptical of it. But there is a right use of gifts. Let me give you an example of this in Scripture over in 1 Kings chapter 10. This is talking about where the Queen of Sheba had heard of the wisdom of Solomon and she wanted to come and inquire of Solomon and prove him with some hard questions and find out if he was really as wise as all of these reports and if he was as wealthy as she had heard of, etc. So here in 1 Kings chapter 10, in verse 1, it says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. The way we would say that today is it just took her breath away. Man, she just was overwhelmed with the majesty and the glory, the splendor of all the things that Solomon had. In verse 6, And she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in mine own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and thy prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happier thy man, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. 
So this is that instance of the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon. But let me just, you know, you need to think here a little bit. Uh, I know that that's hard to do for some people. They don't think when they read the Bible. They use it kind of for entertainment or as uh, something to just say, God, see what I've done. But if you would use your brain as you read this, it would really help you get a greater understanding of what was going on. You know, Solomon was the wisest man, the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. And it says that people from all over the world came to inquire of him and to search out his wisdom. Now, let me just ask you, if you were to go to the president of the United States or whatever country it is that you live in, it doesn't matter if it's one of the European countries, an Africa country, Australia, India, with this program's being heard all around the world. Wherever it is, if you were to go to the president or the leader of your country, do you think that you'd just be able to walk straight up there? Like in our country, would you be able to walk up to the White House and knock on the door and have the president come out and talk to you? You know, I don't think so. And yet I personally believe that Solomon in his day had more fame, more favor, more notoriety than the leader of any country that you could imagine today. If you couldn't walk up to the president of your country and just get an audience, but you'd have to get in line and there is a lot of protocol, a lot of things that you have to go through, I can guarantee you it was like that back in Solomon's day. How did the Queen of Sheba actually get an entrance to Solomon? I wouldn't be surprised to see a six-month or a year waiting list of people wanting to see Solomon. How do you do that? Well, look at this verse in First. Kings chapter 10 and verse 10, it says, She gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. You know what a hundred and twenty talents of gold amounts to? I've got that written out right here. A talent equaled 75.5 pounds. So that means that 120 talents was 9,060 pounds or 144,960 ounces of gold. Now, depending on what figure you use for gold, like I have it figured here at $300 an ounce, but I just had one of my uh, staff people tell me that just this last week, gold closed above $500 an ounce. If you use the $300 per ounce figure, the Queen of Sheba gave Solomon 43,488,000 dollars worth of gold. If you use the $500 per ounce figure, then that would amount to 72,080,000 dollars worth of gold. You know why the Queen of Sheba got in to see Solomon? You know how she got put to the front of the line? It's just exactly like that verse that I was using in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 6, that a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The Queen of Sheba used a gift of 72 million, either uh, 43 or 72 million, depending on what price you have fixed to go. But she used a gift of tens of millions of dollars worth of gold. And that's not including all of the spices and the jewels and the other precious stones and things that she bought. She very easily could have given him the equivalent of over a hundred million dollars worth of gifts. And you know what that did? That put her to the front of the line. 
and it opened up an opportunity for her to hear the wisest man on the face of the earth and she got to not only just spend a little bit of time with him, like a five-minute audience, but she actually saw the way that he ate. She ate with him. She saw his attendance, saw all of these things. It's implying that she got to spend a number of days uh, with Solomon. Of course, we don't know exactly what the details were. But this gift opened up a door. It made room for her and brought her before the greatest man of her day. Now, see, that's the positive power of a gift. And again, we are so against bribes and we've seen the negative power of a gift that sometimes people don't want to even acknowledge that a gift could be used in a godly way, in a positive way. We think that anytime you use a gift to influence anybody that it's a negative, ungodly type of thing. But here's the Queen of Sheba using a gift just exactly the way it talked about in Proverbs 18:16, to open up a door, to make room for her and to bring her before a great man. Did you know that the gift giving, when you start giving financially, in the spiritual world, it does a similar type of thing for us. It opens up a door. It'll make room for you. It'll bring you before great men. Now again, I'm not talking about using this for an evil purpose with a wrong heart that would equate to a bribe. But I'm saying that when you give, you need to start recognizing that that gift will make room for you. It will open up spiritual things. And I'm just trying to establish this principle that when you start partnering with a ministry, you need to recognize that by giving and by becoming a partner with a person, it's like you start drawing on that anointing on that blessing that is on their life and that starts coming into you. And when you give, you actually partake of the anointing and of the blessing that is on that ministry you give to. Now there's a good side and a bad side to that. The bad side is that if you're giving to a bad ministry, one that is not ministering the true gospel, you're also partaking of those negative things in their life. But you become a partner with a person when you give and you start receiving of the benefit that is on that life. You know, let me give you an example of this that some very good friends of mine, Charlie and Jill LeBlanc, they travel with us and they lead the praise and worship in our gospel truth seminars and they're just a wonderful couple. Well, I've known them for about 25 or 30 years and Charlie and Jill LeBlanc in the beginning of their ministry ministered in a lot of small churches because of this. They just really had a desire to take their giving that they had and make the biggest impact. And so they gave to pastors of small churches. They gave to missionaries who didn't have a big support base. And their giving really impacted and helped these people. And so they were basically giving where they knew that their gift could do the most good and help people. But the Lord began to deal with them many years ago that they not only needed to give like that to help other people, but they needed to give two ministries that would help them and that their giving would open up a door for them, that they could actually partake of the anointing and the blessing that is on these other ministries by them giving to it. And so Charlie and Jill graduated from Rama Bible Training Center, so they started giving to uh, Kenneth Hagin's ministry. Uh, of course, they had received from my ministry, so they started giving to me, even though we had been friends for many years. They didn't give their uh, you know, gifts towards me. They gave into other ministries. They started giving into my ministry. 
and they started giving into Joyce Meyer ministry because they uh, came out of the same church in St. Louis as Joyce Meyer, and they knew Joyce Meyer and Dave pretty well, and so they started sowing into their ministry. Within six months of giving to these other ministries, Dave and Joyce Meyer called Charlie and Jill up, took them out to eat, and asked them if they would start leading the praise and worship in their uh, seminars that they held all around the country. And so Charlie and Jill accepted. And anyway, they went from ministering in churches of one to three, four, five hundred people up to, you know, having conferences of fifteen or twenty thousand and above. And a lot of that, by their own testimony, came because God directed them to start giving to ministries that didn't, in a sense, now understand what I'm saying here, in a sense, their gift was a small fraction of what Joyce Meyer needed. I mean, Joyce Meyer runs about 5 or $8 million a month or something like that. I'm not even sure, but it's a large number. And they looked at their giving as, what good is that going to do Joyce? But see, it wasn't about giving and helping Joyce as much as it was opening up a door. They were partaking of that anointing. And when Dave and Joyce Meyer took them out to lunch and offered them this position of leading the praise and worship for them, did you know that Joyce said that she had gone back and looked at the giving record and found out that they had just started becoming a part and giving into that. And she said that that was a factor in in her asking Charlie and Jill to come lead her praise and worship. So the point that I'm making is, see, when you give, not only are you blessing the people that you give to, but you are also beginning to draw that anointing and blessing and favor of God that is on that ministry towards you. And a lot of people haven't understood that that happens in partnership. And I use the Queen of Sheba as an example of this. First Kings chapter 10, she came to see Solomon and she brought all of this gold and spices. It depends on how you, uh, what price you put on uh, gold. I used a price of $300 an ounce, which would come out to $43,488,000 worth of gold that the Queen of Sheba brought uh, Solomon. Just recently, though, gold topped $500 an ounce, and if you use that figure, that would be over $72 million worth of gold that the Queen of Sheba brought to uh, Solomon. And when she gave that gift, now that wasn't only just the gold. She also gave precious stones and an abundance of spices. It says there was never the like of any such spices brought into the nation of Israel. So she gave probably over $100 million worth of uh, goods to Solomon. And by doing that, it put her to the head of the line. It opened his heart up to her. He shared with her, imparted his wisdom. And then also, it caused him to give back to her. Now, I want you to follow this logic along. You know, if if, um, a talent of gold is 75.5 pounds... So, if you figure that there was 120 talents of gold, that's 9,060 pounds of gold that she brought. If you suppose that a camel could carry 300 pounds of gold per camel, then that would be 
over 30 camels just to carry the gold. Now, on top of the gold, there was more spices than there was gold. So there was a minimum of 30 camels. It could have been 60 camels or more of spices. That puts it up anywhere from 60 to 100 camels. And then on top of that, there was precious stones. And then on top of that, you know that this queen had ladies in waiting that she brought with her. And then for all of the protection of all of this gold and and, uh, spices and all of these things that she was bringing, there must have been an army... I bet you that there was anywhere from two to three hundred camels in this caravan that was traveling through the desert up to Israel. Now the reason this is important is because what this means is that the Queen of Sheba could not have traveled incognito. She couldn't have been inconspicuous. I guarantee you wherever she went, her camel train was probably one of the biggest camel trains that people had ever seen. And so people noticed her, and when they asked about why did she have all of this gold and precious stones and spices, and where was she going with all of this? And when she told them that she was going to give this to the richest man on the face of the earth, Solomon, I can guarantee you there were some people that raised their eyebrows at that. There were some people, I'm sure, that were critical, thinking, well, why would you give all of this to Solomon? Look at all of the people you could help. I'm sure that at the oasis they passed through, that there were beggars, there were people in need. I'm sure that they passed through kingdoms, entire nations, where the gross national product didn't amount to a $100 million worth of stuff that she was carrying to Solomon. She could have changed entire nations. She could have helped beggars. She could have built clinics. She could have helped people. She could have done all of these things. But you know what? You need, to, you need to have benevolence giving where you just bless somebody who hasn't got a thing to offer to you. The scripture talks about having pity on the poor and I believe all of that. And so we give to people that don't have any way of blessing us back. But that is not the only type of giving. Also, there is what I call a partnership type of giving where you give to someone who is preaching the gospel, who has an anointing on their life, and by doing so, you actually grab hold of that anointing and that blessing that is on that individual or on that church or ministry, and then those blessings start becoming your blessings. You actually become a partner with them, not only in your giving, but you receive. You receive spiritual benefit that makes a difference in your life. And see, that's what the Queen of Sheba did. She passed up all of these beggars, all of these nations that could have used all of these resources that she had. And she brought them to the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. I'm sure many people would have condemned her. But when she did that, God opened up uh, an avenue for her to talk to Solomon. She received that wisdom. And look at what the scripture says here. It says in 1 Kings chapter 10, in verse 13... And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, besides that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now notice it says that Solomon gave unto her out of his royal bounty. How much was his royal bounty? Well, look in the next verse, verse 14. It says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred three score and six talents of gold. Besides that, 
he had of the merchantman and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. In other words, King Solomon got 666 talents of gold brought to him. And then on top of that, he had all of his business, all of the people that did business with him, all of the kingdoms that were subject to him that paid tariffs, taxes, tolls unto him, and uh, all of these other things. There's no telling how much money that Solomon got. But we do know from Scripture that Solomon was the richest man on the face of the earth. It says that silver wasn't even counted as being anything in his days. They threw silver on the streets, just treated it like a rock because gold was so plentiful. Solomon was stinking, filthy, dirty, rich. Amen. I mean, he had money to burn. And here's my point. That if the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon somewhere around $100 million worth of goods... And if she gave that to him and her resources were limited, well then when it says that he gave unto her out of his bounty, I can guarantee you she got back more than she gave. Now again, it says that Solomon got 666 talents of gold a year. That's not including all of his business investments, all of the people, the nations that were servants to him that paid him tariffs and things like this. But that 666 talents of gold is 50,283 pounds of gold, 804,528 ounces of gold. If you figure that out at $500 per ounce, that's $402 million worth of gold that he got besides all of his other investments and nations that were subject to him and things like this. This amounts to just this one figure, which isn't near all of his income, but this one figure means that Solomon had five and a half times as much money come to him in a year as what the Queen of Sheba gave to him. And again, that's not all of his investments. I'm sure that this was only a fraction of a percent of all of the wealth that Solomon got in one year. And then he was king for 40 years, and so he accumulated this. Solomon, his bounty was just so much greater than the Queen of Sheba that when she gave this gift, she not only got his wisdom, got his favor, got his blessing, but then he gave unto her out of his bounty and if she gave him $100 million, I'm sure she left with $200 million or $300 million or whatever. And here's my point in saying this. See, as she was traveling to Jerusalem and she had the equivalent of this $100 million worth of goods, I'm sure that beggars, kings, many people, maybe even some of her own group, criticized her about bringing all of this wealth to a man who already had it all. What was the point? Well, the point was she wasn't giving it to help Solomon. She was giving it to help herself. She was giving it so that she could partake of his wisdom and of that favor and anointing that was on his life. And then as she gave it, she reaped it back and Solomon blessed her and she left with two or three or four times as much as she went with. And now, if she did have beggars cry out to her, our kings come and say, why don't you help our nation instead of giving this to this wealthy man? Now, if she was disposed to give and to help people, can you see that she was much more, much more able now to go back and help all of the beggars along the way, all of the kingdoms that were in need, to go back to her own kingdom and to help the people there? Can you see that by her 
not giving to these people who were in terrible need, but instead she went and gave to where she needed to give. Boy, I pray that you're understanding what I'm saying. It's not wrong to give to people in need. Matter of fact, there's a scripture that says, if you see your brother or sister in need, and if you shut up your bowels of compassion, how dwells the love of God in you? So yes, you are supposed to give where you see people in need. But that is not the only reason to give. Sometimes you need to give because you need what that church or minister that you're giving to has. You need that anointing. You know, we tell our Bible college students this all of the time, that if you feel called into missions, go find somebody who's doing a mission similar to what you're doing and start supporting them. Become a partner with them. Give to that ministry. And then that anointing and that wisdom and that uh, experience that they have, it's going to start coming your way. You're going to start benefiting from that. It's kind of like if you can see somebody who's climbing up a ladder and they're up there above you, latch on to them and they will help pull you up. You need to find somebody that's gone further than you have and sow into their life to help you get to that place. I hope that you follow what I'm saying. Well, see, the Queen of Sheba did that. She found a man who had more favor, more wisdom, more finances, more blessing of God than she had. And she literally passed up beggars and people who were in needs to get that, that gift to this man so that she could receive. And when she received, if she was disposed to do so, then she could have been ten times as great a blessing to people as she would have been just on her own. You know, sometimes if you see a person begging... That tugs on your heartstrings to such a degree that people, there are some people that that's the only way they give is to where they see a crisis situation, to where they have some terrible need. And I'm basing this on experience. I tell you, I've been in the ministry. I've seen a lot of things. I've been around a lot of people. And if you go on television and start begging and saying, we're going to have to go off television and this is going to happen, you know what? A lot of people will give to you. But the point I'm making is most people don't use wisdom when it comes to giving. They give an emotional type of thing. They give to where it looks like it's critical, crisis situation. I actually had a man one time that gave me a building in Manitou Springs. And when we moved in, he stayed and worked for me for a while. And after seeing the way we operated, he came to me and he says, Why didn't you tell people? that you needed help financially. He gave away twenty or $30,000 the previous year, and he says, you're the first one I thought of every time, but you never begged for money, so I didn't know that you needed. Well, see, that's not the only reason to give is when you see a crisis situation. You need to also recognize that when you partner with a ministry and you give deliberately, you can partake of the blessing, the anointing that is on their life. And that is a valid use of your giving. And so I want to encourage you as we draw this series to a close that you need to take all of these things we've talked about. You need to give to people that are in need. Have pity on the poor. You need to give where you're fed. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And you need to give where you want to go. You need to sow where you want to go. And if you would do that, you know what? It would start a supernatural flow of God's finances towards you so that you could not only have your needs met, but then you could abound unto every good work.